We'll begin this evening's talk with the instruction from the Buddha that I offered last evening. It is in this way we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. The contemporary Chinese written character for love was developed out of two ancient pictographs, symbols. The top symbol was a very simple symbol representing a person breathing, a symbol for breath. And the bottom symbol was one for the heart. So in Chinese pictographic writing, the word or the symbol for love is breath through the heart or breathing through the heart. So this evening we'll begin to explore the liberation of the heart, the heart's release. Metta is one of four particular wholesome qualities or capacities of the heart, of the mind. They're called the Brahma-viharas, which is often translated as the heavenly or divine abodes. These capacities are also sometimes called the immeasurables because they emerge, as they emerge and mature, they blossom into boundless, immeasurable capacities of being. These divine abidings are actually expressions of what is sometimes called original mind. The heart, the mind, that's clear, pure, unfettered by the layers and the knots of conditioned reactive habit patterns that cause us to suffer and keep us disconnected, keep us shut off. The immeasurables are not created through our practice, but are uncovered by means of a process in which one faces and moves through the conditioned habit patterns that obscure or that stand in the way of the divine abidings. As we repeatedly offer ourself the possibility of connecting with various facets or qualities of each of these immeasurable capacities. We don't need to acquire metta or acquire equanimity. They're already in our heart in abundance. Rather, we need to see and let go of the enmity, the fear, the ill will that obscures these capacities. Each and all of the Brahma-viharas are perfectly natural, absolutely natural aspects of our humanness. So, in this sense, we could say they're quite ordinary. And at the same time, they're also quite extraordinary capacities of being. As these wholesome and beautiful qualities of our human heart emerge and become more stable, moving towards a limitless, boundless maturity, we begin to taste and to know, to live what we could call the heart's release. At any moment, 
and maybe just sustaining briefly for the duration of the snap of a finger, as the Buddha said. Any one of us might experience our heart and mind totally free from enmity, totally free from ill will, experience the purity of kindness and goodwill, no matter what, so to say. Absolute kind-heartedness, the purity of metta, the heart's release. The Buddha spoke about this experience as making one a truly spiritual person, a truly spiritual being. So, the four divine abidings, the four immeasurables, these four aspects of the enlightened heart, enlightened mind, as love, be it relatively cool and impersonal love, is the quintessential quality of the enlightened heart. So the first abiding is metta, unconditional kind-heartedness, unconditional friendship. The second abiding is karuna, compassion, growing into a boundless compassion. Compassion in relationship to suffering. And the third abiding is mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy. This joy, taking delight in relationship to others' happiness, in relationship to another's success, with no envy, no jealousy, no judgment, as well as experiencing joy and delight in relationship to one's own successes and happinesses. And the last of these four capacities is upekka, equanimity, the spaciousness, balance, and the non-reactivity of the heart, the mind. A cooling of the fires and a balance in the light of all that comes, changes, and goes within us and around us. And as I mentioned last night, during the first part of this retreat, we'll focus primarily on metta, which Mahatma Gandhi spoke of as being the most powerful and the most subtle energy in the universe. Metta is the energy that connects. It's the energy that keeps it all together. It's the glue, we could say. And this is a <clears throat> piece from Krishnamurti's meditation journal. When the heart enters into the mind, the mind has quite a different quality. It's really then limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you're part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. You must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. So this jar that anyone can drink out of, this jar of metta, whether it's golden or whether it's earthenware, this immeasurable capacity to connect, to connect with and accept without picking, without rejecting. Kind-heartedness with immeasurable impartiality. 
impartially respecting, impartially embracing all sentient beings, not just those that we're close to or those that might be maybe useful to us in some way or those that are pleasing or maybe amusing to us, but really the possibility of an open-hearted impartiality. There's a, a wonderful poem that someone gave me, a metaphorical teaching by Hafiz that speaks of this. He calls it, The Sun Never Says. And this is the poem. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look at what happens with a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. As we practice metta, we begin to uncover and cultivate a love that's really truly great, a greatness of heart that's not conditioned, that's not finite, but that's fearless, fearless and open. And with even just one moment of experiencing this, we're deeply refreshed. It's as though breathing fresh, clean air into the heart. In that moment, we're washed clean, purified of all ill will towards all beings, which very much includes ourselves. The Buddha spoke many, many times over the 45 years that he taught about how powerful and how consequential it is to experience just one moment of a mind, a heart, really fully in touch, connected and absorbed in the feeling of metta, in the feeling of loving-kindness. This is the practice of the heart. And I think of it as, this is the heart of practice. Although we feel, although we experience metta personally, ourselves, it's actually a totally impersonal quality, a totally impersonal capacity. The feeling of metta, the still heart of absolute acceptance. A moment when the sense of separation, the sense of preference, of difference, of any sense of discrimination has disappeared, is absent. Even just for a moment. And this is what we can call love. This is meta-love. And it's really the ground that all of the other divine abidings spring from. It's also the ground that allows the whole of our practice, the practice of insight, our vipassana practice, to unfold, which in turn continues the process of purification and the blossoming of acceptance, kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And it's important to note here that it's not a linear process. Not first one and then the other. The practices dance together, aiding and abetting each other, we could say. One of my Burmese teachers, who I've already mentioned, Sayada Upandita, has said that most people think that everything begins and ends here. And he knocks his head. He said, but I've been checking for a very long time. This man became a monk when he was quite a small boy, and he's now in his mid-80s, so he, he's been checking for quite a while. And he said that I found that everything 
begins and ends here. And he thumps his chest in the heart center. Everything begins and ends here. And so after hearing this a number of times from him, I really started checking. And it seems that it's so. Everything begins and ends right here in the heart. As you practice in the very specific ways of the metta teachings, as the purification of the heart, the mind, takes place, as your practice develops and blossoms, there's a very natural unfolding, a natural ripening of patience, of confidence, of fearlessness, trust, joy, happiness. There's a natural opening and ripening into a loving heart that contains all of these qualities. The various flavors of ill will, such as hostility or judgment, anger, hatred, dislike, fear, that we've all experienced towards ourselves and towards others, begins to subside with our practice. The practice of metta actually weakens these states. In a certain sense, we could describe metta as secluding or cloistering the heart, the mind, from anger and fear. In the deepest strength of its medicine, this metamedicine, it dismantles, it unwinds, it unbinds the heart, the mind, from states of anger, fear, judgment, states of separation, all of them. These strong energies that move through the mind, through the heart, and through our body begin to weaken and begin to fade under the strong light, under the strong medicine of a loving heart. The more moments of a true metta, the less moments of anger, worry, anxiety, fear. It's actually not possible to feel unconditional acceptance, friendship, kindness, unconditional love, and fear simultaneously. We can't feel both at the same time. So the more moments of metta, the less moments of fear, anger, hatred. Someone once asked Nisargadatta Maharaj, an Indian teacher who's no longer alive, he taught through dialogue with his students. And someone once asked him, what can make me love? And he answered, you are love when you're not afraid. You are love when you're not afraid. I think that every one of us essentially wants to be loving. I think that every one of us essentially wants to be able to really, truly love. It's a natural human inclination. And we've tasted it. Maybe just momentarily or maybe for a longer time. And we know that when we're in this state, there's a sense of really not needing anything. There's a sense of having everything we need. We get what we need. It all just comes. It all just is. And whatever comes and whatever goes, whatever comes, whatever goes, is just enough. It's just enough. It's okay. And as we've been discovering today, or rediscovering, 
this practice of loving kindness for ourselves today and for others as we go on is basically characterized by wishing well. Wishing well for ourselves and wishing well for others. As, in, as in, in a clear and unfettered way as is possible. And as I've already mentioned, Metta and all of the other Brahma-viharas are uncovered and developed through our practice, through our meditation practice. It's not about acquiring kind-heartedness. It's actually already in our heart in abundance. So we could say that this process of practice, this process of purification, is not about bypassing the habits of mind that lie between us and enlightened love, but about recognizing and then letting go of clinging, fear, anger, hatred, ignorance, all of which obscure metta, obscure compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. So we could say that the Buddha's way works by subtraction. We get to awakening, we get to enlightenment by removing whatever stands between the goal and us. So the way lies directly through the Kilesa says the word is in Pali, or the defilements, or the, can- uh, the Buddha's very graphic word, the cankers, which must be courageously seen and accepted for what they are and purified by diligent practice. Our practice isn't about making metta, karuna, mudita, and upekka into goals. Instead, we need to look at the enmity, the ill will, the cruelty, envy, jealousy, agitation, fear, anger, attachment in our heart and mind, and let go of them little by little by little, as best we can. In this way, we grow naturally into kind-heartedness, compassion, rejoicing, and dispassion. And one day, maybe we can say, as the Dalai Lama says, my religion is kindness. As practice unfolds, the feeling of annoyance, irritation, criticism, anxiety, slowly, slowly, and sometimes quickly, weaken. These averse feelings subside as we begin to really connect internally. We truly begin to feel a connection within ourselves and in relationship to others a connection, a caring, that needs no conditions met for it to exist. And again, it's impersonal in nature. Even in relationship to what we think of and are attached to as our self, our body, our mind. Metta is accepting. It's non-critical, non-judgmental in relationship to our body, in relationship to the mind with all of its moods, emotions, thoughts, memories. Metta isn't at all interested in comparing or criticizing. It allows things to be as they are, with a sense of well-being within us with patience, with acceptance, 
with basically with goodwill. Metta and aversion don't or they can't exist simultaneously. And metta doesn't depend, in relationship to others, metta doesn't depend on liking someone or approving of them. It actually has nothing to do with approving of. With the heart of metta, we're actually able to connect with beings beneath that with what we might not agree with, or maybe that we even don't condone. Metta is accepting on a very deep, universal level, but not necessarily approving. It's non-critical. It doesn't compare, as I've already said. It doesn't favor one over the other. It's not divisive. Metta is a unifying energy. It brings things together. It's goodwill towards all beings, all sentient beings. I think for most people, the ordinary conventional relative notions of love contain the energies of attachment and possessiveness and conditionality. In the traditional teachings, metta is compared to a mother's unconditional love for her only child. And in the words of the Buddha, he says, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. With our developing and deepening heart of loving kindness, we're less and less inclined to wallow in difficult or afflictive states of mind. We're less inclined towards reacting with anger or getting stuck in self-pity or pitying another person when afflictive states of mind or difficult emotional states are manifesting within ourselves or within someone else we're less and less inclined to judge and criticize ourselves and less inclined to criticize or judge others. And we don't obsessively try to find or try to kind of root out ours or another's weaknesses or faults or what we label as faults or weaknesses. We're less inclined to get stuck for too long in our own conditioned habit patterns, which we often have very strong identification with. Maybe we have an identification of being fearful. I'm a fearful person, or I'm an angry person, or I'm a sad person, or I'm a depressed person. This is me. This is how I am. We're less inclined to get stuck and have such strong identification. Or to lock someone else into a particular identity that's connected with their emotional states. Maybe not identifying someone as maybe we have in the past. Oh, he's always sad or... She's a fearful, weak person. That's just how she is. That's her. We're less inclined to go there and to get stuck there as our practice develops and deepens. With this practice, which includes the willingness to begin to see and to know these difficult states of mind, to really be open to them, 
to see and to know these aspects of ourself and of others with kindness, with the approach and the relationship of kindness, with a spaciousness, with a patient, mindful awareness. We begin to then actually be able to be with ourselves in ways that are sometimes more easily accessed in relationship, for instance, to a friend. We can learn to be with ourselves and see all of the different manifestations of our bodily experience, of the emotional states of mind, of heart, and all of the various manifestations of thought coming and going and changing. We learn to approach them with kindness, with a kind of acceptance, with a patient heart, as may be fear or sadness or jealousy or anger or joy or delight or wanting, clinging, dullness, boredom or ease of being or attachment as they all arise and pass. When our practice is couched in metta, we don't create another layer of difficulty, another layer of suffering on top of what might already be taking place by being averse, by being antagonistic or attached or clinging to particular states of mind, of body. There may be difficulty, there may be discomfort. As we practice metta with an attitude of metta in relationship to our experience, we find that there can be a sense of well-being deep within, without aversion, for instance, to uncomfortable or difficult physical or mental experience. Also, trying to grasp, to hold on to, or force the habit of particular states of mind or bodily experiences that are very comfortable, that are very pleasant, also causes great difficulty, also causes anguish. These also arise and continually pass. It's their nature. And so we begin our metta practice with ourself, as we have today, with all of our moods, feelings, feelings that might be difficult, experiences of the body that might be difficult, beautiful feelings, beautiful experiences, and not demanding that they not be there, that they not be here, not demanding that they go away. Our habit is very often to demand that they not be here if it's not comfortable, if it's not pleasant, or to demand that they stay, that they don't leave if it's pleasant, if it's comfortable. But instead, we're learning how to practice with a radical acceptance, which is really the basis of the heart of metta. Emotions, sensations, feelings, thoughts very naturally arise and naturally go away. You don't feel anger all of the time. You don't feel fear all of the time, do you? It comes, it goes. It's the nature of it. So struggling with what comes struggling with what goes, fighting with it, trying to get rid of it, for instance, actually perpetuates it. We get stuck in it when we struggle with it. As we fight with it, as we try to push it away, I think of it as Velcro practice. You can't let go, you know. It's also important to remember The practice isn't about being idealistic. It's not about attachment to an ideal of loving-kindness. The purification of the heart, 
the mind occurs via being very honest with ourselves, by being willing to accept with this attitude of metta, accept the difficult states, the reactions, the fears that come. Practice is a learning to abide in a sense of well-being, meaning developing this sense of acceptance, patience, non-criticism towards this body, the conditions that arise in the mind, the habits, memories, good or bad, the reactions, by allowing them to be what they are in the moment. They just simply are what they are. And this is how it is in this moment. The quality, the capacity of kind-heartedness, as I mentioned earlier, is a seed that we all have planted in us, been planted in us many times. So from this perspective, it's not about working to attain something, but rather allowing the practice of metta to be metta itself. Interestingly enough, I think for most of us, when we're with a dear friend, we don't usually demand that they stop feeling what they're feeling, especially if they're really being honest with us and sharing their feelings in an honest way. We usually treat them kindly. We listen. We treat them with respect, with care. Can we also do this with ourselves? For ourselves? Metta and wisdom, metta and understanding, arise when we begin to accept all the different beings, we could say, both within ourselves and outside of ourselves, rather than trying to manipulate or ignoring these beings. Unconditional love is really deep understanding. Unconditional love is wisdom. Understanding, wisdom, is unconditional love. And as I also mentioned earlier, the Buddha very clearly stated that we're no less or no more deserving than any other being of our love and our care. There's a great intimacy in this, in this depth of self-acceptance as it unfolds in and through our practice. It becomes a very essential and expanding intimacy a deep intimacy with all sentient beings begins to unfold. The intimacy of connection, of interconnection. This essential intimacy of non-separation, non-separateness in relationship to all beings. And it really begins with ourself. We begin to come to know this very directly experientially, experiencing the truth of a radical acceptance, a boundless intimacy, an acceptance of life in all its forms, which, of course, most assuredly includes ourselves. We enter into a knowing, a knowing of the interrelatedness of all beings, of all things. And this is one aspect of metta, one aspect of unconditional friendship, unconditional love, the interrelatedness of all beings, all things. Metta is one of the best medicines, a very powerful medicine, an antidote to the loneliness, the existential Loneliness that's so often the dis-ease of our time. I think it's quite fair to say that our human heart is 
really intuitively, naturally loving. Connection and generosity of heart are absolutely natural human capacities. And we see it in the smallest children. I was feeding one of my granddaughters when she was, or attempting to feed one of my granddaughters when she was seven months old. I was giving her a piece of a banana and she took it from me in her hand and then turned her hand around and stuffed it in my mouth. (laughs) Generosity. She was feeding me. And it wasn't mean at all. It was a very innocent and pure expression of the heart of kindness. A few years ago, I read a book that was about a uh, 102-year-old, about and by, actually, a 102-year-old black man whose name is George Dawson. He grew up on his family's farm in East Texas and was uh, the grandson of slaves. At the age of eight, George had to go to work to help support the family. So he never attended school and he never learned how to read until the age of 98 when he decided to attend a literacy program and he learned how to read at the age of 98 and then proceeded to write a book about himself. It's it's an amazing and inspiring and very illuminating book. George describes how he learned to read the world and survive in it. So I'd like to share a little bit of this book with you. At one point, George is having a conversation with Richard. Richard is the man who helped George write the book. And they're talking together about George, who at the age of 101 was still living alone. And as George says, doing just fine. So Richard speaking. You're not really alone. People call and come by all day long. There's a community of people that cares about you. You live by yourself, but no, you're not alone. George, that's right. You figured that out. Yes, it's nice that people stop by like they do, but they do, they do because they want to. I have nothing to give them, but they always feel better when they leave. Richard, that sounds like a riddle. George. It does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life I've been good to people. In all those years, every person I met, I've treated with respect. People do the same for me. Richard, what goes around comes around. George, that's right. It all comes back, everything you do. Sometimes it might take a while, that's all. I tell people not to worry about things, not to worry about their lives. Things will be all right. People need to hear that. Life is good just as it is. There isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard, people worry too much? (laughs) George, that's right. Be happy. Be happy with what you have. Help somebody instead of worrying. It'll make a person feel better. It's good to be generous. It doesn't take much to make a difference. Even the poorest man can just take the time to say hello. That can be a help. Have some sympathy for someone's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you can, and if you have nothing, at least pray for somebody. Have good thoughts. So the cultivation, the practice of metta, is metta itself. In the process of this cultivation, this prompting of unconditional loving-kindness, is the purification of its opposites, what in the classical teachings are called the far enemies of metta, energies such as anger, jealousy, fear, envy, hatred, all of the various forms of ill will, the opposites of metta, 
that we've already explored to some degree this evening. And also in the process of uncovering and deepening this unconditional caring heart, there's the purification of what are called the near enemies, or what looks like love, or what our conditioned habits of mind sometimes mistake for love, such as attachment, possessiveness, greed, the I need, I want, I must have energies. There are particular advertisements that you've probably heard or seen that say, this is a must-have. You'll love it. I was quite surprised when I saw those ads. <laughs> it's a mistaken notion. There's so many ways that we're culturally conditioned around mistaking attachment, around mistaking possessiveness, mistaking greed for love. Certainly our advertising, very strong conditioning, but also songs, films, literature, all these venues, not always of course, but certainly sometimes really promoting confusion, promoting anguish, and telling us, for instance, that love hurts. Love doesn't hurt. It's the near enemies and the far enemies that hurt, not love. We suffer in greed. We suffer in possessiveness, hatred, anger, fear. Unconditional loving kindness, that love that needs no conditions to be met. There's no suffering. There's no anguish in this. And it's essentially important that we don't pretend anything in our practice, that we don't act out of some idealized concept of what we think a really loving, compassionate, spiritual person is, or how we think we should be if we were really a spiritual person. It's really important to be honest, as I've mentioned, to be really honest with ourselves. Mother Teresa, as you know, is someone who many people think of uh, as a, quite a saintly person, that she was quite a saintly person. And she was an amazing human being in what she did with her life. Someone sent me a prayer, a practice of hers uh, at one point, <clears throat> and I was told that it was her personal practice. This is the prayer of someone who maybe was a saint, or who certainly was saintly in the way that she led her life, what she did for others. And this is her prayer, her practice, and I'll read it just, as it, uh, just in the way that I got it. Deliver me, O Jesus, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being calumniated, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. That's a pretty honest saint. Uh, after I got this, I not long after I got a phone call from a friend, and I said, oh, I have to read you this, and I read it over the phone, and his response was, um, oh my God, have I got a lot to do. <laughs> and it's true. We have a lot of work to do in our spiritual practice. I find that that prayer, though, that practice, very inspiring. Very inspiring. 
in our formal practice and in our life, our life as our practice, we have the opportunity to meet, to really come face to face and to recognize the conditional states of mind that aren't metta without identifying them as who we are, as who I am. We can learn to accept these states as they arise and pass, as they come and go, just like all phenomena that arises and passes and comes and goes. Very strong energies, often, yes, but they do come and go. This expanding energy of our heart allows us to explore these conditional states of mind with less judgment, with more spaciousness, and see them as they are, to, in a sense, see through them. An important aspect of this seeing through is that we begin to see the conditional nature, the contingent nature, the not-self nature, of afflictive states. We begin to know experientially that mind states such as anger or fear or jealousy or possessiveness or attachment are totally conditional, totally contingent, totally dependent on myriad of conditions coming together at some particular moment and then anger or fear or jealousy or delight even arises. An infinite amount of conditions coming together and then, boom, anger. Our habit has been to make it quite linear. That it's one thing that created or caused the anger or the fear. I'm angry because you did such and such a minute ago or 20 years ago or I'm afraid because you might do such and such in a minute or next week or next year. This linear understanding is only a very tiny piece of the process. Actually it's many, many conditions repeated conditioned reactions within our mind to what's happening and has happened within us and around us. And then up arise the reactive patterns of fear or anger, dislike or hatred that are always based in me, in mine, in I, and are always painful. Rather than us meeting a situation with an open-hearted response based in metta and understanding that is open, making it possible for us to respond rather than react in old habituated ways. And it's hard to remember this because our habit patterns are quite strong. Effective practice reveals the patterns that run our lives. We may not particularly like some of those patterns when we see them, but if we turn away from them, they win. And then they continue to operate, continue to run our life. We need to recognize the variety of experiences or results, we could say, that practice can produce. And not be seduced, for instance, by the pleasant. Not be put off by the unpleasant. Not be put to sleep by the neutral. Pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral responses to experience have the possibility of triggering the emotional reactions of attraction and attachment or various aversive states or indifference, all of which are formed 
around and maintain the sense of I, maintain the sense of me, maintain the sense of mine. With metta practice, we observe and recognize our reaction to opening to others. Seeing the reactive process that prevents the particular immeasurable from manifesting. Shutting down blocks loving kindness. And it may be uncomfortable as you see how these patterns operate. The discomfort is actually part of the reactive process operating that can erode our attention, erode mindful presence, because we get so caught in the discomfort, we stop paying attention. Practice isn't about avoiding feelings of discomfort. It's about holding the pattern and the reactions in awareness. At some point, we begin to experience a shift. We begin to see through the reactive pattern. And it becomes empty. This shift can come about quite suddenly sometimes, or very gradually. In any case, you realize at some point that all of the turmoil has vanished. And you're now in a very different state of mind. This shift has the quality of opening, relaxing, and knowing. And it really is what marks the arising of metta. Relaxation and openness are important marks of the arising of metta. And yet, the relationship with metta, it isn't yet stable at this point. And so the process may occur many, many times. Metta arising, and then fading. And then we come back into holding the reactive pattern in awareness until it empties again, and then resting in it, and on it goes until at some point in time, the underlying core of the reactive emotional pattern falls apart. And metta becomes a stable experience, a stable quality of the heart, a stable quality of the mind. And so we begin this practice with ourselves, connecting with and watching our heart, our mind, and slowly expanding outward from here, where everything starts. Eventually connecting, eventually encompassing every form of life on the planet, every form of life on the universe, those seen and unseen. As an example of the stability and the beauty of a heart, a mind steeped in kind-heartedness, I'd like to share a little bit again from our 103-year-old bodhisattva, George Dawson. For much of his life, George endured a very pervasive racism and segregation in the South because of growing up in East Texas and at the time that he grew up. During the time that he grew up there, East Texas actually had the highest rate of lynchings of any state in the Union. And actually this book begins when George was eight years old, as he witnessed the lynching of a teenage boy who was a kind of his hero. When George was 65 years old, he was doing yard work for a woman who had left his lunch on the back porch with her dogs. And this is George speaking. She didn't see me from the shadow of the tree, but I watched as she put down two bowls on the floor for some dogs, and another she set up on the shelf, 
<clears throat> that was above the reach of the dogs. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good, and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit in and a quiet spot to say grace when I looked down and saw the dogs eating the food that was the same food that was there for me on the shelf. There wasn't such a surprise in that. People didn't buy dog food in the sack like they do now. Dogs mostly ate leftovers from the table. But what hit me was that she expected that I would eat out on the porch with the dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room, but back in their kitchen would have been all right. I told myself that I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. I set the bowl back on the shelf. Being hungry, that wasn't so easy. I know she didn't plan to insult me. She just didn't know better. Still, she could believe what she wanted, but I weren't no animal. I wasn't going to eat with dogs. If I did, she would go on believing that way, and maybe she would have been right. Late in the afternoon, she came by. Didn't you see the lunch I left on the porch, she said. I nodded. I saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. Thank you, I'm sure it was. It's just that I don't eat with dogs. As I said that, I looked her straight in the eye. I could tell she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face, but I didn't turn away. I didn't look down. I eat with people. I'm a human being. At my words, her face tightened, and her look changed to meanness and anger. From her mother and father and back through her grandparents, I could see a hundred years of anger and fear coming out towards me. I stood up to it and repeated, I'm a human being. She was so angry she couldn't speak. I waited. Finally, in a cold tone, she said, I don't need to come back. You don't need to come back anymore. I said, that's right. I don't need to. And then George goes on to say, I figure you can hate someone for what they think and do. But you, I figure, excuse me, I figure you can't hate someone for what they think and do. But you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways you react to it. In the transformation, the opening into the greatness of heart, there's a great letting go, a release, a relinquishment of much of what we may have been holding onto, much of what we've grasped onto very tightly. There's a great release of the contractions of the heart, the past pains, the hurts, the anguish that we've taken in and taken on as mine, as me, as I am. It's not easy to relinquish this, this conditioning, these habituated patterns of self. But this is what binds the heart. This is what binds the mind. Our commitment to our practice our willingness to take the journey is really what affords the transformation. And it's not so easy at times, but it's incredibly well worth it. There's a tremendous fullness of energy which is constituted by great confidence, strength, and a very clear straightforwardness that comes from a loving heart that comes from the heart of metta that George Dawson so beautifully lets us know. And I'd like to uh, close the talk now with a valentine. (laughs) A student sent me a valentine this year. And it was... um, there was a little sticker about a half an inch in diameter, round, and the little sticker said it was red, and on it it had uh, white printing that said, this is love. And this is the words, the valentine that was underneath the sticker. Take this tiny label, stick it on your dining table, stick it on your favorite book, stick it where you always look, 
Stick it on some brand new shoes. Stick it on the evening news. Stick it on a broken heart. Stick it on a hospice chart. Stick it on a violin. Stick it on your thinnest skin. Stick it on a long lost friend. Stick it on a bill to send. Stick it on your desk or wall. Use it on a conference call. Stick it on a microphone. Feel it when you're all alone. Put it on a mirror, yes. See it when your hair's a mess. Stick it on the Senate floor. Stick it on the White House door. Stick it on the other side. Stick it where it cannot hide. Can you see love everywhere? We hope we can. We hope we dare. And let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.